53 years ago off California's coast, an ecological catastrophe gained worldwide attention. The worst of Santa Barbara's fears were realized on January 28, 1969, when a blowout occurred at Platform A, shattering the fragile caprock on the ocean floor and allowing massive amounts of oil to begin bubbling into the water and drifting ashore. The state's largest oil disaster shocked the nation into action. The creation of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the passing of California's Environmental Quality Act, the Federal Environmental Protection Act, and a day to reflect and learn about environmentalism, also known as Earth Day. But in a world where climate change is ravaging the Earth, what good is just a day anymore? I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. We stand now where two roads diverge, but unlike the roads in Robert Frost's familiar poem, they are not equally fair. The road we have long been traveling is deceptively easy, a smooth superhighway on which we progress with great speed, but at its end lies disaster. The other fork of the road, the one less traveled by, offers our last, our only chance to reach a destination that assures the preservation of our Earth. That's my colleague Rosanna Shaw reading a passage from Rachel Carson's landmark book, Silent Spring. As Earth Day approaches, we wanted to reflect on the history and importance of this annual event and talk about where we go from here. So what better time to bring back our prophets of peril, our Emersons of emergencies, our Descartes of doomsday? They think, therefore, they are our masters of disaster. Musica maestro. Sitting as always in the earthquake chair is Ron Lynn. Hey, Ron, who do we thank for the lack of any big quake so far this year? Not you, because the last time you mentioned a lack of big earthquakes, we just had one like a month later. Uh-oh, I jinxed it. <laughs> Damn it, I always do that. On the wildfire wing is Alex Wigglesworth. Alex, since water is the opposite of fire, can you make it rain? I wish. We'll get there one day. And joining us in you is our Cassandra of the Coast, Rosanna Shaw. So how was that conference of crustaceans you cleverly canvassed in Cabo? I think it would be shellfish of me to talk about that when we're supposed to be talking about Earth Day. Boom, <laughs> touche. Thank you all, as always, for joining us. And Rosanna, let's actually start with you reading Silent Spring. Take us back to the 1960s. What kind of state of mind were we in leading up to the creation of Earth Day? Three things come to mind when I think of the sparks that ignited the modern environmental movement. One, obviously, was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which really helped the public think about how everything on this planet is connected. Before this book, it was, you know, the post-World War II era. Chemicals were the miracle of science. Frankly, our town has gained a lot by the coming of the nylon plant. In every way, our town is a bigger and better community. Industrialization was our economy booster, and we were just starting to learn 
seemingly simple concepts like food chains and ecosystems. And these concepts, I might add, were being debated and questioned publicly by major corporations and industries, not unlike the way climate change science continues to be debated today. There was a motto at the time, dilution is the solution to pollution, and Silent Spring really made us reconsider that frame of mind. Dilution just means the problem reaccumulates elsewhere. There was also the Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969 and this stunning fire in Cleveland where a river quite literally went up in flames because there was so much trash and chemicals in the water that the river caught fire. These events shocked us into seeing just how rampant our disregard for the environment was at the time. We take a lot of our environmental protection laws for granted today, but back then we were just dumping chemical waste into rivers and the ocean. Pesticides like DDT got fogged all over beaches and farms, and the smog, as anyone growing up in L.A. would remember, was just awful. So all of this ended up leading to the creation of Earth Day then? Yeah. Later in 1969, Senator Nelson, a Democrat from Wisconsin, was in Santa Barbara to follow up on the oil spill, and he came up with the idea of doing a national teach-in on how human activities were damaging the natural world. This was, you know, in the era of the counterculture and the Vietnam protests, so teach-ins were very much in vogue at the time. And this idea led to Earth Day, which led to some pretty significant legislation that continues to guide the way we manage and protect our natural resources today. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, it also led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, which has a complicated track record today, depending on who you're talking to. But can you imagine the EPA not even existing before 1970? I should also note that these landmark regulations were passed under President Nixon. It may not feel like it today, but protecting the environment was a no-brainer bipartisan issue back then. All this history, all these people pushing, but... Now, when I think about Earth Day, I think about my mailbox just filled with all these emails from companies saying, oh, look, we're green, we're eco-friendly, we're carbon offsetting, carbon neutral. You get sick of Earth Day quick that way. Is that the same for you, Rosanna? Yeah, I mean, I would say Earth Day today has evolved into a number of things. The cynic in me thinks of all the greenwashing email pitches that flood my inbox, too. There are so many. But there is still a lot of meaningful education work that happens each year come April. Community cleanups, special education events. I noticed that a lot of environmental campaigns and big policy decisions also often get pegged to Earth Day. So even though we should be thinking about these issues every day, not just once a year, it is important to acknowledge that Earth Day has become an important way to check in on these issues at least once a year for folks who aren't engaged all the time. And it's not just about buying more stuff that is quote unquote sustainable. We'll be right back. So, Ron, we're talking about Earth Day and the campaign every April sort of reminds me of ShakeOut, the day we're supposed to pay attention here in California to earthquake prevention and safety. But no one does. What day is it supposed to be again? I forget. (laughs) It's every third Thursday in October, which is usually around my birthday. So it's easy for me to remember it. (laughs) I always actually thought that it happens to be around the anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake, the World Series earthquake from 1989. But the real reason is actually quite boring. The first one happened only in 2008. And it was in mid-November and the schools were like, mid-October is actually a better time for them. So want, want. That's the reason why. But the anniversaries actually, for me, are helpful because I can almost peg any time of the year to an earthquake. It's a helpful reminder that 
any month could be a time for an earthquake. I mean, there is this kind of myth that there's an earthquake weather of it happening during hot weather, but that's not true. We've had earthquakes in the winter time too. If you give me a month, I can give you the name of an earthquake that has happened before. Welcome to Give a Month and Ron Lin Gives You an Earthquake. First up, we have the Times host and columnist, Gustavo Arellano. June. June, June, June. There was the Landers earthquake of 1992, a magnitude 7.3 that shook up the Mojave Desert. Next is Rosanna Shaw, coastal overlord and pun master. September. September, the, the, two, um, the two quakes in Mexico, the 1985 and the, the one from 2017. And that's it for Give a Month and Ron Lin Gives You an Earthquake. Tune in next month for Ask Rosanna How She's Doing and She'll Ruin Your Day with a Terrible Joke. Wow, we're going to take this show on the road one day, Ron. But Alex, so there's a shakeout day. There's an Earth Day. Is there a day where we just think about just wildfires? And doesn't the idea itself kind of sound silly? Sure, there are wildfire awareness days, although I'm not sure that any of them are widely observed. California actually has a wildfire preparedness week in early May. We said in the past, and I'm going to bring it back today, we provide the offense. You need to provide the defense. Make it so your home can be defendable. I would say awareness really starts building in August and September when half of the state is on fire and it's dark outside at noon because of the smoke. It's inescapable. But Earth Day is also about raising awareness about the conditions that are making disasters like wildfires worse, which definitely doesn't hurt. And when it comes to mitigating fire risk in particular, there are a couple laws that can be traced back to the momentum generated by that first Earth Day that Rosanna was talking about. Like, aggressive logging has made wildfire risk worse in many of California's forests by removing the biggest, most fire-resistant trees. Large areas were clear-cut and replaced by these tightly-packed, even-aged, single-species plantations which burn really easily and are more vulnerable to drought and pests. But pressure from environmental groups led to big changes in the 1970s. The California Forest Practices Act of 1973 created a new state board to oversee the timber industry and directed it to impose rules on logging operations on privately owned land. And then the National Forest Management Act of 1976 directed the U.S. Forest Service to regulate timber harvesting on federal land, including limiting the size of clear cuts. Ron, what kind of these actions by the state, oh, shakeout, oh, wildfire preparedness week or whatever, does that actually help us to try to mitigate for these things or try to plan for these things? You know, actually it does. Sometimes politicians will want to hook to sign legislation or anything. And the two quakes that kind of have stuck in our memory for many Californians, it's the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which happened on April 18th, just a few days away, and it destroyed much of the city. The Loma Prieta earthquake, or the shakeout day in in mid-October, those seem to be like the big dates. So like nine years ago, San Francisco passed its own law requiring apartments to be retrofitted time to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And seven years ago in LA, Mayor Eric Garcetti signed into law rules requiring vulnerable apartment and concrete buildings to be retrofitted. So they end up being good deadline dates to get in major pieces of legislation. Yeah, but part of me is like, you have these days and these weeks, even though we live in an era where these disasters are around us. Wildfire season is now all year, Alex. Earthquakes, as Ron always warns us and none of us listen, 
could happen any day. And then Earth Day, Rosanna, hey, yeah, we got to keep the forest. We got to keep the hills, protect the condor. But when I think of environmental pollution, I mean, I'm thinking of working class communities, kind of like where like in the port cities where my dad worked. I grew up like a baseball throw away from the 91 freeway in Anaheim. It's poor folks who have to live with these consequences of climate change. So, Rosanna, why should we keep Earth Day? Why can't it be like Earth Month or like celebrate Earth every day, man? Yeah, I struggle with this because a lot of good has come out of Earth Day, but the movement has not arguably evolved in a way that is inclusive of how people think about the environment today. Earth Day, to be blunt, was a pretty white movement. The modern environmental movement was anchored by people who could afford to care about the environment, people who had the privilege to pick which neighborhoods got more trees and clean air. If you look at the environmental pollution legacies today, we have created a system that essentially allows for sacrifice zones. But it has been encouraging to see more focus recently on the environmental burdens and injustices placed on predominantly non-white, lower-income communities. I'm starting to hear from a lot more people within the traditional environmental space who are rethinking what it means to truly have resilient ecosystems and resilient social systems and really recognizing that this is all interconnected. There has also been a super interesting shift in the way we're now talking about conservationism and the role of people within nature. The environmental movement of the 1960s locked us into a pretty specific governmental framework of how to take care of the environment, which ended up erasing a lot of communities and their knowledge. I reflected on this recently, actually, with California's head of natural resources, Wade Crowfoot, who has been figuring out ways to work in better partnership, for example, with tribal nations. To quote him, the modern conservation movement that catalyzed around Earth Day created this perception that environmental protection is protecting nature from people, but people have always been part of nature. Yeah, just to add on to what Rosanna is saying, there are definitely legacies of environmental injustice and racism that still exist, and no single awareness day is going to fix that. Last year, there was a study by researchers at UC Irvine and UC Davis that found that the parts of California hit hardest by wildfire tend to have higher poverty rates and unemployment and a greater proportion of low-income, older, and indigenous residents. They also tended to have lower home values and higher rates of vacant housing units. So these are some of the last remaining places in the state where homes are attainable, and people who often can't afford to live anywhere else are at the greatest risk. The researchers also found that wildfires are just more frequent in these vulnerable areas. They inferred this could be because of differences in vegetation management between high and low-income communities and the availability of resources to fight fires in these areas. And when you go to those vulnerable areas, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's something I've come across a lot just anecdotally in my on-the-ground reporting. Last year, the Calder Fire in El Dorado County destroyed Grizzly Flats, which was a blue-collar community. But Lake Tahoe, where there are all these million-dollar vacation homes, was protected. And in Plumas County, the Dixie Fire devastated the working-class town of Greenville, but the wealthier community of Lake Almanor was saved. I should also note that government agencies have been really slow to include indigenous people in land management decisions and to draw on their extensive knowledge of how to manage land to reduce wildfire risk. And that's been to everyone's detriment. Uh, for instance, I recently visited Greenville for a story I'm working on. The town is the ancestral home of the Mountain Maidu. For centuries, the Maidu did cultural burning in the hills surrounding Greenville to stimulate the production of certain foods, medicines, and tools, to more easily hunt and spot intruders, and to keep down populations of certain pests like weevils and ticks, among other reasons. The landscape became adapted to these frequent, low-intensity fires. 
Then during the gold rush, the Maidu were forced out from their land by European American colonizers who outlawed their burning practices and aggressively logged and grazed the land. As a result, it became really unbalanced, overgrown and very fire prone. When the Dixie fire started last summer, there were parts of the forest that hadn't burned in a hundred years. Dixie fire uh, is the first fire that we're aware of that has burned from the west side of the mountain range all the way over and to the valley floor on the east side of the mountain range. We don't have any record of that happening before. So the fire burned so intensely and so severely through all that dense timber, which was also dry due to the climate change supercharged drought. The firefighters weren't able to stop the fire when it raced over the hills and destroyed Greenville. And the Maidu were forced to watch this, knowing it was avoidable. Not only did the fire devastate the town, it took out the heart of the Maidu's ancestral territory. That includes about 2,300 acres of land the Maidu had recently regained from Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Ironically, state investigators have since found that a PG&E power line started the fire. But in the settlements, PG&E admits no wrongdoing, but the company has agreed to pay more than $55 million and will submit to five years of oversight by an independent monitor. And it's only recently that government agencies like the Forest Service, which manages about 57% of California's forested land, have begun to embrace controlled burns as a useful tool. They're trying to do prescribed burns more often. The problem is, is that it was outlawed for so long that now the fuel content is way too high. But now conditions have grown so warm and dry, while at the same time forests are so dense and overstocked that it's often really difficult to find windows to perform these burns. Hearing all of this, Alex, hearing just all these different approaches that we've done in the past that were good or in the past that were good and we've just completely forgotten, it reminds me of that Rachel Carson quote from Silent Spring that Rosanna read earlier about roads we can take. So for everyone, what's the road going forward that we should take, especially regarding Earth Day? I can't speak as much to Earth Day, but I can speak in parts to both earthquakes and actually public health, too. In terms of earthquakes, you know, as COVID is receding from being the existential crisis that it kind of felt like in the first two years of the pandemic, it's still with us and we still need to pay attention to it. There are things that we need to get back to. So like one of the things that the mayor, Eric Garcetti, never really resolved is this issue of steel skyscrapers, that there are many of them in the city of LA that have not been assessed and they're not required to be retrofitted. And it is plausible that steel skyscrapers could come tumbling down in a quake. And there's a number of other things. There's lots of suburbs throughout LA County and Southern California, where there's not a requirement that they be retrofitted. So those are some of the things to be worried about. But speaking of days or weeks, early April is actually public health week, and it's being used by LA County to highlight the years of environmental pollution in East LA caused by uh, harmful chemicals spewed out by the battery recycling facility XI Technologies. And what the county is doing is they're trying to give more support to children or family members with developmental delays and assist them in terms of providing care. And so these are the kinds of situations in which stuff that doesn't really get that much attention can get some added boost from an anniversary. A road of retrofitting. I like that. Alex. Yeah, so like when it comes to the wildfire piece of it, people's relationship to wildfire is really dependent on where they live. The things someone might consider doing to reduce wildfire risk if they're a landowner near a wilderness area is very different than the things someone might do if they live in downtown LA. 
So I'd say the most universal wisdom would be to do anything you can to play a part in slowing and mitigating climate change. And probably most importantly, elect representatives who care about these issues and will do their part to listen to the science and try to rein in big corporations who are by far the worst polluters of them all. And that includes representatives who value indigenous knowledge when it comes to land management decisions and understand that the way we manage forest lands does play a role in how severely and intensely wildfires burn through them. So road of reality check. Rosanna, what about you? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of work ahead of us, especially with the acceleration of climate change and the fundamental changes we need to be making as a society, especially through the lens of making sure that going forward, we are distributing the way we change more equally. And this isn't easy, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we have done this before. Earth Day proved to us that systemic change is possible. The changes that were made back then weren't perfect, but imagine how much worse our environment would be today without them. There's a quote from the first head of the EPA in 1970 that I often think about. He said that, quote, even if all of our waters are not swimmable or fishable, at least they are no longer flammable. So in other words, everyone take the road less traveled, the true environmentally safe one. Just don't stop by woods on a snowy evening. (laughs) None of you like Robert Frost, do you? Okay, whatever. We'll be right back. And now comes our traditional ending to Masters of Disasters, where we ask our masters, what's bringing them joy in these trying times? So, Rosanna, let's start with you. What's bringing you joy? I know you've missed my jokes. Gustavo, what did the Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? Catholic. Make me one with everything. That's better than my Robert (laughs) Frost joke. That's some deep track stuff right there. Alex, what's bringing you joy? Yeah, so I recently moved to 29 Palms and I actually have uh, baby desert iguanas in my backyard. And it's a big deal for me because I actually had a pet iguana growing up uh, because my mom was allergic to dogs. So I never thought that there would just be like wild iguanas running around outside my house. Yay, desert iguanas. And then finally, Ron, what's bringing you joy? So I'm planning a trip out to New England this summer for a friend's wedding. And so one of the things that we're excited to, to see is to check out the two types of lobster rolls. I guess there's a Connecticut-style lobster roll and a Maine-style lobster roll. And so we're going to figure out which one's better. Rosanna, do you have a, anything to share on lobster rolls and, and what's better or not? I'm from Massachusetts, so I will remain neutral in this <laughs> debate. Let's go to Alex, who's from Philly. Maybe she has an opinion. I don't think we have lobster rolls in Philly. Well, Ron, you're going to have to be our scout and report to us when you come back. Ron Lind, Alex Wigglesworth, Rosanna Shaw, as always, thank you so much for being on this. Masters of Disasters. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, a look at how things have changed 75 years after the landmark school desegregation case, Mendez et al. versus Westminster School District. Never heard of it? You're not the only one. Shannon Lynn was a hef on this episode. She's a senior producer along with Denise Guerra and Kasia Brasalia. David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras are producers. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Morgan. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>